Well, take your Bibles, join me in Matthew chapter 4. We are once again going to look at verses 1 through 11 and the event that we looked at last week as well, and that is the temptation of our Lord. Last week we viewed just the initial portion of this event and talked about the impeccability of Christ. That is, helping to answer the question whether or not Jesus could have sinned in the first place. And I trust that that argument that at least I made last week was helpful to you. I know that good folks, as I even mentioned last week, uh, would disagree perhaps uh, with what I said, and and that's fine. It doesn't uh, determine our salvation. But I think it does help us to recognize what, in a greater fashion, what is happening here and and some of the greater purposes behind this event. Um, Today... We're going to take the next step, the second step in looking at this passage, and that is to understand uh, the matter of sin and temptation based on this event. And we're going to look in much more greater fashion, specific fashion at this passage. And so I trust that uh, this will be a help and an encouragement uh, to you. Let's read the text again, verses 1 through 11, Matthew 4. And then we will delve into the sermon this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they shall bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall, not put, or you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Godly men of the past have understood the reality of temptations and the reality of sin. And so they were very guarded, obviously, when it came to both of these subjects. They were guarded, speaking of them, they were guarded in their own lives when they referenced them. That is, They were guarded in their own lives to make sure that they were safeguarding themselves from temptation and safeguarding themselves from sin. Obviously, these godly men that we tend to quote very often were not perfect men, but they were vigilant. And their vigilance led them to make statements like some of what I'm about to read to you. They serve as good reminders to all of us to this very day. John Newton once commented, Satan will seldom come to a Christian with gross temptation. A green log and a candle may be safely left together, 
but bring a few shavings, then some small sticks, and then larger larger pieces of wood, and you may soon bring that green log to ashes. William Gurnall, Gurnall, who wrote The Christian in Complete Armor, I would highly recommend that book to you, about spiritual warfare and really, for all intents and purposes, the ex- an exposition of Ephesians 6. Gurnall said this, The Christian's armor decays in two ways. Either by violent battery, when the Christian is overcome by temptation to sin, or else by neglecting to furbish and scour it with the use of those means which are as oil to keep it clean and bright. John Owen said, Temptations and occasions put nothing into man, but only draw out what is already in him. And Thomas Brooks stated this, It is our wisest and our safest course to stand at the farthest distance from sin possible. The best course to prevent falling into the pit is to keep at the greatest distance from it. He that will be so bold as to attempt to dance upon the brink of the pit may find by woeful experience that it is a righteous thing with God that he should fall into that pit. These men, all of the ones that I quoted here, godly men whose words speak even to this day despite the fact that they died centuries ago. These men knew what they were speaking of and all of them were speaking about temptation. All of them were speaking about sin. So as we begin our sermon today, I wonder how you might answer these questions. First, are you aware of Satan's devices and temptations before you sin? Now, all of us would acknowledge, oh, I'm aware that Satan tempts. That's not the question. The question is, are you aware of Satan's devices and temptations at this very moment? How he uses them in your life and exactly how he operates when he uses them. Question number two, do you actively fight against Satan's temptations as they come at you? The focus of our message this morning is that we can learn a great deal about Satan's tactics, his plans and goals from this event in the life of our Lord. Today, we're going to seek to examine these aspects and draw from this story, this event, some very key aspects that will also help us when we are in the midst of temptation. As I mentioned last week, in his impeccable state, Christ could not have sinned. That's my position on this passage. Agree or disagree? So the question then is, has to be asked, why is this event even taking place? And Satan's mind, I think he really did believe Jesus could have sinned. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. And I think he was viewing this event as a repeat of Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. His opportunity to get now Jesus to fall and to thwart God's plans once again. But we see in verse 1 that it was the Spirit of God who led Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. Why? For what purpose? What reason? It is that question that I think we need to ponder 
and consider this morning. Because I think that there is a significant reason and an answer to that question. That you and I might learn from our Lord's own example how it is that we should defeat temptation. But also how it is that we should understand the temptations that come our way. So four things that I want us to look at and understand this morning. Number one, Satan is the source of all temptation. Number two, God is the one that allows temptation. Number three, Scripture brings victory over temptation. And four, personal weaknesses are the target of temptations. I trust that these things will be helpful to us as we break them down this morning for God's glory. So let's begin with this first point. Satan is the source of all temptations. Temptations begin with Satan. His his desire to, again, corrupt God's working, corrupt God's plans. His desire to use our own weaknesses and our own depravity. And in fact, the depravity of even the unbeliever to condemn that unbeliever's own soul. He is the one, the scripture says, blinds the minds of men so that they won't even receive the gospel. He's very active in his work and in what he does. But notice a couple of things. First, a scriptural teaching on Satan. And there's a number of verses that we could look at, a number of passages. I want to draw your attention to three this morning. And then I just want to give us a brief theology of Satan, a brief theology of who he is. And theology and and, and Satan don't quite go together, right? Theology is understanding of God. But what I mean by that is an understanding of who he is. God in relation to Satan, all right? So first, notice what the scripture teaches us about Satan, about the devil, about Lucifer. The first passage I want to draw your attention is Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. There, it says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. Satan has freedom to operate in this world. And he takes advantage of that. He is active. He's walking up and down throughout the earth. And he's not just on a leisurely stroll, folks. He is doing so with a purpose. A purpose that is diabolical, right? Devilish. That is after corrupting what God is creating, what God is doing. It is his goal to stop every opportunity that God when God is at work. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 is the second passage where Peter exhorts all of us to be sober-minded. Be watchful, he says. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So what is he doing as he's walking throughout the world? He's looking to gulp down to devour the weak. The unaware. 
The one who's not being watchful. The one who's not being sober-minded. The one who's weak. The one who is unsuspecting. Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. The last passage I want to draw to your attention. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan's rule, if you will, does not last long, and it will come to an end. He is a defeated foe, and that I believe he already knows. He knows in the end he doesn't win, so I think, my personal opinion, his goal is to take with him as many as he can. To corrupt as much as he can corrupt. To stop as much as he can stop. Now this brings another question. Can Satan really stop what God ordains? Can Satan really stop the work that God is after? I see heads shaking. I see eyes glazed over. Now that could be that it's still the morning, I understand. The answer to that question is only if God allows it. And sometimes God does allow it. And he has a reason for doing so. We're going to get there. But let's take the next step and look at an understanding here, a theology, if you will, of who Satan is. Jonathan Edwards commented about Satan. He said this, The devil can counterfeit all the saving operations and graces of the Spirit of God. Think about that. He can counterfeit all the saving operations and graces of the Spirit of God. I thought about that. I remember when I first read that, I thought, boy, that's bothersome. What was Edwards doing when he wrote that, right? But the more I think about it, the more I think, you know, Edwards was onto something there. Think about those that appear to be so religious. Think about those that for pre, all, all intents and pretense can act as if they were believers, can say the right things. I mean, if a human can do it, can't Satan do it? And sometimes there are things that seem to be so powerful and so amazing that they just have to be a move, move of God, right? Wrong. Half of these religious experiences that are happening within the charismatic realm, I don't believe are of God. I believe much of them are of Satan. Why? Because he can counterfeit those things. He's an angel of light. Scripture talks about Satan as being one of the, one of the most beautiful things that God had created. He's not the guy with a long tail and a pitchfork and horns. Satan's musical. He was in charge of worship in heaven. You think God does not uh, create amazing things and you don't think Satan as a corrupted creation cannot counterfeit what he was created to do in the first place? 
Think about those things for a moment. And then consider, again, this enemy, this devil, this Satan that we are battling on a regular basis. What does Satan do? Well, he exploits human weaknesses, as we've already talked about. In Genesis 3, it was the human weakness of the woman that Satan used to begin the process of causing Adam to fall. The human weakness in that case was getting Eve to doubt what God had said in the first place. He comes to the woman and says, God's keeping something from you. He's letting you eat from all of these trees except for the one. That most beautiful tree in the middle of the garden. He's not going to let you eat of it. Did God really say don't do that? And then he says to the woman, you're not really going to die. That's not really going to happen. And Eve's weaknesses at that moment, at that time, are exploited. And we know the rest of the story. She ate of the tree and the scripture says that she then gave the fruit to her husband and he ate it. And from that point on, sin entered the world. And death by sin. So death passed upon all men for all have sinned. How about Job chapter 2 verses 4 and 5? We've already made reference to the initial part of that passage, but... Verses 4 and 5 say this, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. This was Satan's belief about Job. Asking the Lord, hey, if you touch his body, if you give him some kind of disease, he's going to curse you to his face. And Satan, in all of his power, was going to make sure that happened. How often does Satan use the trials that we have in our life and cause us to curse God? Doesn't it happen? In fact, it happens far too often than we wish to admit, doesn't it? But that's what he does. He seeks to exploit our human weaknesses. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul said this, Be angry and don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give opportunity to the devil. So even in being angry, there is the potential for sinning. And so he says, don't let it go down. Forgive. Get, get it right. Don't, in other words, go to bed angry. Because when you do, you give an opportunity for Satan to be at work in your life. He exploits the weaknesses that we have. That's what he does. But he also tempts believers to fall away. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, For this reason, Paul says, When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul said he had concern about the Thessalonian believers, that somehow Satan had gotten them to fall away. And clearly Paul is writing this from experience of that happening in other places. In Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus' own words to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, 
that he might sift you like wheat. What did Jesus say? But I have prayed for you. Jesus said no. God said no. But you see, my friends, Satan desires to get believers to fall away. He wants to use our weaknesses to corrupt what God is doing and to get us to leave the graces of God. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about me. He cares about one thing. He cares about one thing, to corrupt God's work. Satan inspires believers to put God to the test. Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Putting God to the test. Peter comes to Ananias and he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? I think we know this story. The fact that they kept proceeds back was not the issue, right? They could have given whatever they, they, they desired to give. The issue was when they lied about it. When they wanted to make themselves look better or had to have given more so that they could appear to be more spiritual. When they lied about it, that became the issue. And Peter asked this, Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. The Bible says when Ananias, verse 5, heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Putting God to the test. What I mean by that is to somehow think that we can lie or to sin or to do those things that God tells us not to do thinking that no harm will come. Thinking that no consequences will ever befall us. When Satan says, hey, just admit so much and you'll be okay. Or don't be honest about this or bad things are going to happen. Put God to the test. And the test is this. Will God really show your sin for what it is? Will God really show you to be who you really are at that moment? The answer to those questions, folks, is He will. Absolutely. Ananias and Sapphira themselves may have thought even for a moment that they got away with the sin that they did, but they did not. Satan lies and says, hey, no big deal. God says, it is a big deal. And judgment will still come. Satan also is sure to make sin attractive, isn't he? 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5 Paul, challenging the Corinthians, talks about a lack of self-control and how Satan can use that. He says in verse 5, chapter 7, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Going back to Ephesians, or I'm sorry, Acts 5, verse 3, Ananias and Sapphira, this lack of integrity that these two had. And Peter says again to him that Satan had filled his heart and caused him to lie to the Holy Spirit. Do you know what else 
what other sin Satan can make attractive, and there's a whole list of them. This is not by any means exhaustive, but these are just some things that came to my mind. A lack of forgiveness. Do you know bitterness feels really good to hang on to? A lack of forgiveness, and even the anger that goes with it, Satan really wants us to hold on to that. And he'll, in our emotional state, make it feel real good. Or or somehow, we're getting a better hand on the person we're angry and bitter toward. Because we're not going to let him go. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have not forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And what Paul is saying is that even something so, quote-unquote, simple as forgiving someone can greatly be used greatly of Satan to corrupt the walk of a believer. A lack of forgiveness. And then pride, envy, self, amb- selfish ambition. James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unscriptural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So, this is how he operates. This is, if you will, the modus operandi, right? The method of operation, however you want to put it. This is what Satan does. This is how he works. And folks, we would do well to understand this. He is the one who is the source the author of, the worker of temptation. And his goal is sin, but beyond just sin, it is the ultimate destruction and corruption of God's creation and the stopping of God's work. But let's take the next step because I asked the question previously, can Satan really stop what God is doing and what God is after? My answer there, only if God allows it. So the second point that I want us to see here is that God is the one that allows temptation. What do we see here in our text? Verse 1, Then Jesus was led up, how? By the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is something that was planned and authored and allowed by God Himself. The Spirit takes Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted. Thomas Watson once said, The godly have some good in them, therefore the devil afflicts them, and some evil in them, and therefore God afflicts them. It's a good point, isn't it? The godly have some good in them, therefore the devil afflicts them, and some evil in them, and therefore God afflicts them. So what's happening here? Well, Jesus was led to this event by the Spirit of God for a purpose. And we already established last week that there is no way that Satan would have been able to accomplish what it was he was after. And there's also no way 
that God would have allowed Jesus to be put in a situation where he could have fallen and, and had he been able to do so. So there's a, there's a greater purpose, a greater reason for this happening. And I think it is that we might understand, that we might have a clear example of how it is that we can defeat temptation through the eyes and the actions of our Lord here. Remember, God gave Satan permission to tempt Job. Every time. Every time Satan desired to do something, he had to come to God for permission to do so. God remained with Job every step of the way, even after he gave Satan permission to take the next step. But one thing you see throughout all those 42 chapters of the book of Job, you never see God ever telling Job why it was that he went through what he went through. Never an explanation. And you know what, folks? God doesn't owe us an explanation. But what we do see in that entire story is God promising and then being with Job every step of the way. To the place where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. To the place where Job's faith is ultimately strengthened and he's that much better at the end despite temptations and opportunities to go the other way. God remained with Job every step of the way. So while he doesn't promise us or owe us an explanation for the temptations that we face, he does promise to be with us every step of the way. And Scripture reminds us of some critical and crucial truths about temptation. Job chapter 1, 10 through 12. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, this is Satan, and his possessions and have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And God put parameters upon what it was Satan was able to do. Because God had a purpose in allowing Job to go through the temptations that he was going to go through. You say, well, wait a second, Pastor Ben. Those were trials, not temptations. No, 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 no. They were temptations. Because what Satan was after in having Job go through these trials was to get Job to curse God. Was to get Job to fall away and to stop worshiping and trusting in and Resting in God. It was ultimately a temptation. And it was the means of a trial that Satan was going to use to make it happen. So what could have been the purpose for this in Job's life? Well, God had a greater purpose even for Job going through this. And so he gave Satan permission to put Job through the temptation. But you know what the beautiful thing about this is? Job didn't know this, but we can... View it in hindsight. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you, but what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
Whatever Job went through, he went through to the point that God knew he could handle it. Never beyond that. And with those temptations, there was still a way of escape for Job. And there's always a way of escape for you and for me. Folks, understand when temptation comes, sin is not and does not have to be the ultimate result. In fact, I would say it ought not ever be the result, but too far and too often it is the result, isn't it? Temptation is just the beginning. Temptation is the dangling of the carrot before us. Temptation is the, hey, looky here, what you can have. Why don't you take it? Sin is when we take it. It is when we take the lust. Temptation and sin are not the same thing. Understand. Temptation is the way Satan gets us to sin. And these are important things to understand. No temptation is special in any of our cases. It's all common. So in other words, other men have gone through the very same temptations that you and I go through. Our Lord went through the same temptations that you and I go through. Scripture says, yet without sin. And now He's able to understand He's able to understand what we go through, Hebrews tells us. There was a purpose, a greater purpose for this entire event. God sometimes allows temptation to happen, but He is never the author of sin. I want you to understand that. He will allow temptation, but He is not the one who authors sin. In the same case with Adam and Eve. It was their own choice that brought sin into the world. It was Adam's own choice to eat the fruit. It was not God authoring sin. It was indeed, and in fact, God decreeing it. It was God allowing it for a greater purpose of now performing and working out His redemptive plan. It was going to give him a greater glory and exaltation. So we have to understand this. God is not the author of sin. God does allow us to be tempted at times. Number three, when that temptation comes, there is always a way to escape that temptation. And number four, whenever we are tempted, it is never a temptation that is somehow special to us. The temptation is always common. It's always something else, or somebody else has always gone through that same thing. Which, of course, brings a great amount of encouragement. Number three. Scripture brings victory over temptation. And this is where we're going here, because as God would therefore allow us to be tempted at times... He allowed Satan to tempt Job. He allowed Satan to tempt Jesus. What's the way of escape then? 
Sometimes the way of escape is a simple choice on our part to go the other direction. Sometimes it's a choice on our part to to go the other way, to look the other way, to turn off the television. Whatever it might be. Sometimes it's just a choice that we need to make that we know we need to make. Sometimes that's the way of escape. Other times, we need to be more prepared. And that is prepared with Scripture, prepared to address the temptation the moment that it comes our way. And that is the way that our Lord dealt with and handled the temptations brought to Him. Let's walk through these together. Notice with me verses 3 and 4. Matthew chapter 4. And the tempter came and said to him, now to back up, verse 2, what's the situation that, that Jesus is in? He'd been fasting 40 days, 40 nights. And Matthew tells us here under inspiration, he was hungry. No doubt, right? So again, he ex- Satan seeks to exploit human weaknesses. What's the very first thing he comes after Jesus with? Food, right? So, verse 3, And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God... Now, here's the doubt, right? Here's the doubting question. Can you hear the hiss of Satan here, just like with Eve? Did God really say? If you're really the Son of God, as if Jesus doubted it, right? But he, he, he makes the same approach. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now let's just think about this for a moment. Men, we all have egos given to us by God. They're important, but they can be corrupted. In essence, that's the approach Satan's doing here with Jesus. Really? You say you're the Son of God? Prove it. Prove you're the Son of God. I don't believe that you are. If you really are, then why don't you just make these stones bread you can eat? And then everybody's going to know you're really the Son of God. The normal ego of a man would say, man, I, gotta, I better prove this. Somebody here doubts me. I better show them. Not the Lord's response. In fact, we see the Lord not even getting close. What our Lord was prepared for in each of these instances was to respond with Scripture. So what is His response Verse 4, But he, that's Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, What is more important is my spiritual condition. My spiritual, the ability to to feast spiritually on the Word of God and the words that come from the mouth of God, not my physical hunger. And so Satan, I'm going to shut it down right now. I am not going to do this because the Bible says I don't have to. It is written. So his first response here is it is written. So he defeats here a lust of the flesh. 
He defeats the lust of the flesh. Now notice the next thing and see if you don't see a pattern here. Verse 6 and 7. And notice what happens. The devil takes him, verse 5, to look at the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is what? Written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What's Satan after here? Well, it's Jesus' own pride. The pride of life, if you will. Does God love you enough, Jesus, to save you if you were to jump off this cliff? To jump off the pinnacle of this mountaintop right now? Won't he send his angels to make sure nothing happens to you? Why don't you see if it really happens? Why don't you see if God really will do what he says he'll do? Well, the thought of a normal fleshly mind would say, yeah, I wonder if God really does care about me that much. I really wonder if I'm that important to God that He really will send His angels to protect me. The normal mind, the human mind, wants to go with that temptation. And and again, consider whether or not God is really true about what He says. But none of that consideration happens in the mind of our Lord. Instead, the immediate response is, It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not put him to the test. Boom, end of story. End of consideration. God commanded me not to do this, so I'm not even going to go down that road. The last one, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, all this will I give you if you fall down and worship me. Well, the last of these temptations is the lust of the eyes. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Verse 11, the devil departs. It was over. There was no consideration by Jesus of the essence of the temptation that Satan brings to him. And I think it's important to notice that, folks, because, again, Jesus was 100% man here. He has, and I say has because he still has it, but at this moment he had the same flesh that you and I have. He was hungry. He saw with the same eyes that we see He has the same mind that you and I have. Would it have been possible for him at least to go down the path of considering what Satan is saying? That, absolutely. But what our Lord shows us here is that the moment you start down the path, it's too late. The moment you consider the temptation, it's over. 
At this point, it's black and white. It is thus says the Lord. I'm not going to tempt my God. The Bible tells me not to. I'm not going to worship anything or anyone else other than the Lord my God. Clear commands. And I'm standing by the commands. And guess what? The law, the law protected Christ himself from sin. Folks, the law is there for a purpose. It does and will protect us when it's used lawfully. When it's used properly to remind us what it is that we are and are not to do. Jesus used it lawfully. He defeated the temptations with the Word of God. Number four, quickly. I want you to understand personal weaknesses are the target of Satan's temptations to us. You see, Satan immediately tempted Jesus where he was most vulnerable, his hunger. We need to know our weaknesses. We need to take drastic measures to guard against them. So, understand some key scriptures about this. By the way, here's what I mean. If someone is a drunkard or had a struggle with alcohol as an alcoholic, stay away from the booze, right? Don't go near it. If someone has a struggle with pornography, take strong measures to stay away from it or from anything that is going to take you down that road. If someone has a struggle with stealing, stay out of the stores. Don't put yourself in a place where Satan can tempt you. And the list could go on and on and on. It's understanding what our weaknesses are, knowing that Satan uses our personal weaknesses to tempt us and to cause us to sin. Therefore, we must be guarded and take strong measures to stay away from them. Here's what I mean. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to get here, so I'm not going to spend much time here. But in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30, Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And then he says in verse 30, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, in that passage, which we're all familiar with, did Jesus literally mean pluck out your eye and cut off your wrist? No. That's not. Otherwise, there would be a lot of one-eyed, one-handed people walking around. That's not the point. What Jesus is saying is, he says, take strong measures. Take strong measures to make sure. Now notice, and again, I don't want to preach this too quickly because we're going to get there, all right? If you're right, I offends you is the idea. If it causes you to sin, that word offend, the root of that Greek word is means a stick. It's the idea of a stick that would be set up for a trap. Right? The animal goes under it, you pull the stick, stick, the box or whatever is there, comes down, the animal's trapped. The idea here is if your eye or your hand causes you to trigger a trap into adultery, you need to get rid of it. Take strong measures to make sure 
It can't happen. Why? Because personal weaknesses are used all the time by Satan to cause us to sin. And Jesus himself said, take strong measures. 1 John 2, 15-17, this is where we find the exact pattern that Satan's using here with Jesus. Don't love the world, right? Verse 15. Verse 16, for all that's in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, they're not from the Father, but they're from the world. And so what John here, and we looked at this when we worked through 1 John, he says, know that this is the way in which Satan operates. He brings to us the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And if we're loving the world, if we're caring about the world, if we're desirous for the world, we're going to fall for these traps every time. But if we are not loving the world, we'll have less care about those things. And the temptations of Satan will be less effective. Personal weaknesses are the target. Take strong measures to guard yourself and know how Satan is going to work in your life. So as we finish here this morning, some questions for you to consider. Number one, are you living in the reality of temptations every day? I know it's a bit illogical to get up in the morning and say, Today I'm going to be tempted. But I would encourage you to do that in some way. To understand that you're waking up. First thing ought to be, Lord, thank you for a new day. The second prayer should be, Lord, help me not to fall into temptation. Living in that reality that you have a battle before you each and every day is crucial. Number two, do you know your personal weaknesses? Do you know where it is that Satan has you vulnerable? Do you know where you'll fall if given the opportunity to do so? Identify those things and then take strong measures to keep yourself away from them. Number three, do you address your weaknesses and your temptations with Scripture? If you have a struggle, if you have a weakness in your life you know Satan can use, you need to memorize Meditate on Scripture that focuses on those exact areas. Why? Because it's at that moment that you can quote the Scripture whenever Satan is after you and tempting you in those areas. Lastly, do you ask the Lord for help from your temptations? That's something the Lord did not do here because I think in and of Himself He had the power to defeat Him. He was God where we are different than our Savior in this example is we are not God. We do not have the ability in and of ourselves to defeat these temptations. But we do with the power of the Spirit of God. We do not have to sin when we're a believer. Before, and I say this all the time, before we were believers, that's all we could do is sin. We loved it. We wanted it. We desired it. And Satan knew it. But when we're believers, we don't have to sin. Because the Spirit of God indwells us and helps us not to. So our prayer ought to be, Spirit of God, help me today to overcome temptation. 
Help me to defeat sin. And folks, Scripture is key. Scripture is key. Let me leave you with some beautiful Scripture passages this morning that are going to serve to remind all of us and help us in these areas of temptation. Please let these encourage you. Matthew 6, 9-13 Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Romans 6, 1-3 What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can he who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Romans 6, 5-7 For if we then have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Romans six twelve to 14 Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin shall not have dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Hebrews four fifteen and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. James 1, 13-15 Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. When desire... Desire, when it has been conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Just a few passages that help to remind us where we are in Christ, where we are in relation to sin, and how it is that we can have victory. May God help all of us to be on high alert, guarding against temptations, while at the same time looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer together.